0: Hello. I'm Ann Mossop, Sydney Writers Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program.
1: Hello everyone. Thank you very much for that wonderful warm welcome. I'm India and I do, and I'm thrilled to be your host for our wonderful Sydney Writers Festival in conversation with Julia Gillard tonight. <laughs> I can tell you're pumped, right? Really pumped. It's going to be such a special night, a chance to relive a key moment in history with the historical figure at the centre of that moment. We don't often get this chance, so it's going to be very special. First, I would like to pay my deep respects to the traditional owners of the special land that we're meeting on tonight, the Gudigal people of the Ayora Nation, and honour their elders, both past present and emerging. Now, the book, of course, that we're exploring tonight marks 10 years since Australia's first female Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, gave her explosive not now, not ever speech. Now, most of us here tonight remember precisely where we were and what we were doing when Julia Gillard's words rang out from the dispatch box across the floor of federal parliament on that afternoon of October the 9th, 2012. On that afternoon, I actually happened to be preparing to host the Rural Women of the Year Awards in the Great Hall in Canberra Parliament House, actually, just very close to where the drama would be unfolding later that afternoon. So, what was it about that speech, that blast of feminist fury, that resonated not only here, but right around the world? Well, Let's ask the woman herself, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Australia's first female Prime Minister, Julia Gillard.
0: my lair. <laughs> I was going to say the band's back together again. Yeah, the band yes. is back together again. <laughs> now, Julia. Welcome. Thank for this you. night.
1: Very, very special. It's been a year of marking, commemorating the 10th year anniversary of that not now, not ever, that misogyny speech. You've been around the country. You've done events internationally. How how does that feel, because at the time when the speech happened, the Australian media in particular misread it. Catherine Murphy in the book, that you can all get a copy off later on, writes in your book that everyone was focused on the politics of the time, not really understanding the nature of the substance of what you said in that particular bit of the speech, So given that, and the response here was a bit lukewarm to the significance of it, when did you realise that it actually was profound for a number of people? Was there a moment or an incident that that made you realise that?
0: Well, I'd have to say, in terms of recognising uh, the ongoing ramifications of the speech, I think I was a bit of a slow coach. Um, Wayne Swan, who was in the Parliament with me, recognised it instantaneously, and I thought he was being, you know, a bit melodramatic. Uh <laughs> and by the but by the time i went back to my office after question time we were starting to get calls and emails and there was obviously this community reaction that was quite different to the media reaction But I don't think the penny really, really dropped for me until I was, as Prime Minister, travelling internationally. And quite quickly, after the misogyny speech, I went to India on a a prime ministerial visit. And you've got security, your local security, uh, Australian Federal Police come with you, but they also integrate with a local security team and amongst the team was an Indian policewoman. And as I came off the plane, you know, down the steps, into the car, she's in the front seat of the car, I'm sitting behind her, and she just turns around and says, great speech.
1: <laughs> and I thought, right, this
0: is, this is kind of quite a thing now. Um, and it remarkably, and it really is truly remarkable to me, Um, All these years later, it still happens. I went to uh, a wedding in Greece last year, very, very spoiled, but um, a man who used to work with me on my staff when I was Prime Minister had his wedding there. And I'm literally, you know, come off a plane and I'm hassled and, you know, it's hot and things haven't gone easily with the plane flight, and I'm checking into this hotel and the young Greek man behind the desk is like, Julia Gillard, oh, my God, great speech! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that must be so surreal.
1: Very surreal. Yeah,
0: a little bit odd. And every time I was then in the reception area, it was like chatting to me and talking to me about how young Greek men don't understand about gender equality <laughs> and <laughs> what, what could be done in Greece. and
1: <laughs> Any opportunity you yeah, can any, get. any opportunity to spread the word. Julie, you say in Not Now, Not Ever... Uh, the book that you've edited with contributions from leading women academics and activists around the world, that you said that the actual speech, very little of it was actually planned. In fact, you just had a, f- a few scrawled notes and somehow from that became this explosive, fury-filled speech that we all know now. So so tell us, not that you can remember often in those moments where it's all coming from, but but give us a sense of how you found the words and and why you ended up expressing them the way you did
0: I could really only have given that speech in the moment. You know, if you would said to me back then, or even if you said to me now, um, you know, write a speech to deliver in a fortnight's time about misogyny, I I couldn't do that speech. Uh, That speech was in the moment. I didn't know that we were going to be having that kind of debate in Parliament. I'd got ready for question time, you know, they ask a question, you do your best to defend, they ask another question. And I knew that the theme of the day was going to be on sexism and misogyny because of political circumstances around the then Speaker of the House of Representatives. And so I had asked my staff to deliver to me sort of Tony Abbott's top 10 sexist quotes. So I did <laughs> did, did, have those with me. And I have subsequently joked that of the research tasks I'd set them as Prime Minister, that was by no means the hardest. Um, LAUGHTER it delivered it all very, very quickly. Um, <laughs> so I I had those with me, and I was intending a question had come in. I'd use one with a flourish, and then another question would come in. I'd use another one. But then we moved instantaneously to this debate. So I really only had the time that Tony Abbott was speaking to organize my thoughts and that dreadful handwritten notes about the world's worst writing um, are really me just trying to get you know the sequence, the flow, just sort of dot points. And then, you know, it was... I mean, people talk about flow states and that kind of thing. I'm no expert in any of that. But it just felt in the flow. Mm. And the words came. I did pinch some lines being shouted by the backbench. So (laughs) your your colleagues can be very supportive in these moments. Thanks, Wayne Spawn. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And someone on the backbench did yell, um, he needs a mirror, and so I... um, and then on, once someone on the back bench has used a good line, then, you know, several people tend to repeat it. And so there was this chorus, of he needs a mirror. I thought, that's a really good line. Uh, so, you know, it, but it was coming, coming in the flow. And I at no point felt kind of, you know, women particularly have said to me, you know, when I get angry I get teary Um, and, you know, that means people think that I'm upset when really I'm angry and it really makes me angry that people think I'm upset when I'm angry. (laughs) Um, You know, didn't you feel teary and that kind of stuff. And I am capable of getting, I'm not angry often but I do know what it's like to be in that state of angry, teary but this felt different. It was a kind of Cool, more forensic sort of anger.
1: Mm. <laughs> How do you feel now, 10 years on, when you look back at the vision of that speech and, and that youngest version of you giving it?
0: I've never watched it. Oh. From way to go. Not once, not ever. Um, I've... <laughs> not <laughs> once, not, not ever. Not now, not uh, ever. Could be the next book. LAUGHTER um. <laughs> Of course, I've seen extracts of it, because often, you know, when I speak like this, the uh, conference organisers or event organisers will play a little bit of the speech uh, as a lead-in, but I have never uh, sat down and watched it from woe to go, and I've been quite deliberate about that. Um, I mean, one, I never liked watching myself on... uh, I still don't like watching myself on TV or anything like that. When you're in the business, uh, you've got to, and you've got to be doing it to kind of learn and get better, but it's never been, you know, my kind of thing. Let's sit down and watch me on TV. I (laughs) never liked doing that. Uh, But it's more specific than that, which is I really don't want my memories of the day to be overlaid by the vision, by the by the outside of you uh, that the camera necessarily gives you, rather than seeing the scene through my eyes. I want my memories of the day to be my original recollections. So mm. oh, I haven't ever watched it and I don't imagine I ever will. Isn't that interesting? And so when it comes to how you remember that day,
1: w- what is, is there an emotion that stays with you? Because often, if, if I ever lose my, my temper and get angry, I, I sometimes can feel quite, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. But after you said that, did you feel that that was a release? I'm so glad I finally said it.
0: Not really. Um, I I felt this you know, growing frustration as we got closer and closer to question time that I knew that the opposition's attack was going to be framed as me being a hypocrite on sexism. And I did have, and, you know, I don't want to use bad language in a big group, uh, but I did have going through my mind, you know, for goodness sake... um, (laughs) LAUGHTER ..you know... Or words to or that insert effect. your own word. <laughs> words to that effect. Um, you know, after everything I've just kind of taken on the chin and not responded to, now I'm the one in Australian politics. Now it's going to be me, after all of that, uh, who apparently has to put up with the accusations of sexism. So I did feel, you know, this sort of frustration, this, you know, anger building... Uh, And, you know, I was used to going into question time and you needed to, you know, get yourself in the zone. I'd work with my staff preparing, but I'd always spend the last sort of 10, 15 minutes getting in the zone, you know, just getting your breathing right, sort of getting ready for it. And I could always feel as I walked towards the chamber the kind of kick of adrenaline for the contest to come. And I really... Distinctly remember feeling that very strongly that day, but it made me feel very cool, very loose, very in the moment rather than nervous or anxious. And at the end of it, I just felt incredibly calm. I mean, one of the reasons why I say Wayne was onto it before me was you know, when I sat down, I was literally drumming my fingers like, oh, now I'll have to listen to the opposition speaker in reply and I'm going to be bored and, you know, time time's precious. And I said to Wayne, oh, I'm going to get the staff to run in some um, correspondence. So I can start working through some letters. And, and Wayne was like but you can't give the je-queue speech uh, and then settle down and do your correspondence. I'm like, since when do you wander around speaking French? Like, what is going on here? Uh, and and he had picked it, that it was something different, and uh, at that moment, I really hadn't.
1: Mm. Julia, last year, to mark the anniversary, I travelled with you for these stage shows uh, that we did in Melbourne and Sydney extraordinary um, support, almost rock star adulation. I have to admit, I I was even uh, surprised by that. Something you don't find uh, shown for Australian politicians very often. And it seems... (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Uh, And it seems as if there'd almost been a bit of a delay with the Australian public in the significance of this speech. Is Is that what you've felt as you've gone around the country?
0: Yeah, I certainly have felt that. I mean, all of this, the book, the stage shows, it was all and continues to be a fundraiser for the Global Institute for Women's Leadership where we're trying to, you know, get more research, more evidence about what best clears barriers out of the way to enable women to become leaders. And because of that, when we were doing the Not Now, Not Ever shows, I actually had some of the UK team here and some of the Australian team from the Global Institute travelling with me. And I distinctly remember the professor who leads our UK Institute, Professor Rosie Campbell, saying, I just can't believe it, you know, the number of people that come up to you when we're walking down a street or going through an airport or whatever who simply say, you know, thank you for your service or they say something about the misogyny speech. And, you know, I'd like to think... I'd like to think, oh, well, that's obviously all about me. But I actually think it's about a maturing of our conversation about gender. And I think people look back at those times and some of the treatment of me and really just, you know, put their head in their hands and, you know, what were we thinking? What what were we thinking that we ever conducted ourselves like that in Australian politics? and we can do better than that, and we should do better than that, and I think we are doing better than that. Uh, that That more positive, you know, gentle, supportive emotion, I think, then gets expression towards me as a person, which is lovely, uh, but more important than that really is that it gets expression towards the because
1: mm. It was a very volatile time then. Uh, When I look back and look back at the speech, the images, uh, the protests, the the violent language, I can't even believe it was a few years ago. And when we were doing the stage shows, you explained why it did take you so long to call out the misogyny that um, you were being subjected to, and you said you expected people would eventually just get used to a woman being Prime Minister and it just didn't seem to happen, which is where it all bubbled up and and it came up in that speech. How much of the Australian public not settling into a woman as Prime Minister do you blame Tony Abbott for? (laughs)
0: Um, I think think actually Tony Abbott was um, more a symptom than a cause. not sure he would like that um, <laughs> description, but uh, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, kind of because he would
1: say that was just being an effective opposition leader. He would,
0: he would. I mean, I, th- I think gender, and, and I know more about this now than I knew then. Partly a because I lived through it, and secondly b because we now research it at the Global Institute. But you know, through my lived experience and through the research work that we do societies including societies like ours bring gender stereotyping to bear and bear strongly when a barrier is broken down and when there's the first woman uh, and people aren't even conscious that they're doing it um, that's the pernicious thing about gender stereotyping it's whispering in the back of our brains even when we're not 100 percent conscious of it And it is telling us things like you can uh, judge a lot about a woman by her appearance. It's telling us things like uh, women are supposed to be nurturing and empathetic, yet here she is being kind of a hard-ass Prime Minister. That makes me think she's not very likeable. Um, It makes us think things like you know, women who choose not to have children, what kind of woman doesn't choose to have children? And I think all of these stereotypes were running through the community's mind and through the media discourse. And I think Tony Abbott had the same stereotypes in his mind. He was a good judge of community mood. He was an effective campaigner in that sense and he knew that there was something to conjure with here, and he did. Um, Now, he would just say he was getting about his job as opposition leader, but when you look back now and, and read it and see it, it's very, very clear how gendered it was. And I could see how gendered it was too, but I did think that over time, You know, when I first became Prime Minister, there'll be a big reaction to me being the first woman, and then people will get used to it and it will abate, and I was unprepared for the fact that it actually got worse and worse, and the gendered insults became so much the go-to weapon in politics, and because I hadn't raised it earlier, it was hard to raise it later.
1: Mm. I mean, you came through, you know, law, the the unions, uh, you can cut and thrust on the parliamentary floor with the best of them, but those attacks from the opposition did become very personal and and very gendered. When you look back at that time and when you cross paths with a, a Tony Abbott, how much of the personal still stays with you?
0: I don't actually cross paths with Tony Abbott <laughs> all that much. <laughs> I, I do uh, get asked uh, questions like this uh, and, you know, I, I think that people imagine that we all go and retire to some special <laughs> retirement village together and... and you know, we're there playing cards, and and you know, oh, back in the day, like you know, old old prize fighters nursing their uh, nursing their injuries. You know, wasn't I good? No, I got you that day, mate. You know, um, we we don't actually do that. So <laughs> uh, thank heavens. Uh, so I've only seen. I'm pretty sure this is right. I've only seen Tony Abbott twice in all these years in between. Um, One was actually during the election campaign, after I'd finished being Prime Minister, I wasn't re-running. I was sort of living my life like a fugitive because I didn't want the media to catch me anywhere and distract from Labor's election campaign, from Kevin Rudd's election campaign. But I did decide to try and sneak up to Canberra to have a thank-you lunch with the senior public servants who had worked with me because in all the hurly-burly, we hadn't had an opportunity to do that. And I was in the flight lounge in Melbourne uh, waiting to get the plane to Canberra and this quite agitated staff member came over and she's like, oh, you know, it's confidential but I think you should know and anyway, it's confidential who's in the lounge but I think I should tell you, Tony Abbott's about to come into the lounge. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, okay. And he did, you know, I'm sitting visibly in the lounge he walked in, and you could you could feel the whole place. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, people... It was breakfast time. People, like, cup of coffee halfway to their lips, uh, <laughs> about to take a little bite of toast, um, and they're all frozen in the moment. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't... I thought, this could soon degenerate into calls of fight, fight, fight. Like, you know, <laughs> I've, got to, I've, got to, I've got to do something about this. Um, and... I'd seen him. I wasn't sure in that moment that he'd seen me, but I walked up and I said, Tony, um, you know, but, and chatted to him. And that sort of took the temperature down in the lounge that everybody's like, oh, thank goodness, it's going to be OK. Um, And I ended up saying something to him like, you know, uh, I know how hard campaigning is and I, um, you know, wish you personally well for the uh, weeks to come, but not too well because I want you to lose. Um, (laughs) uh, And and he sort of, you know, laughed and said, you know, uh, thank you for that. And then we've only seen each other one other occasion, which was unbelievably when I went to Parliament House to unveil my portrait, you know, my official portrait as Prime Minister. Uh, you know, surveying the audience that had come to watch it, and it was, you know, Labor members and Labor staffers and some people who had worked with me who travelled to Canberra specifically to watch it. I had family members there, it was that kind of crowd. And looking out on the crowd, there in the middle was Tony Abbott. <laughs> and, I, and, and it was really crowded and people were standing, but no one had taken the seat next to him. Uh, <laughs> And so it's sort of the aisle and the vacant seat and then Tony Abbott. And i we were giving the speeches and all that sort of stuff and I saw out right of the corner of my eye Jim Chalmers, you know, come in, busy man, you know, coming in, looking around, seeing an empty seat, just sitting down and then going like that and literally going, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> so even, as, even as I'm trying to thank the artist and all the rest of it, I can see this interplay in the audience. Um, And then it all finished, and we were on, like, a little podium like this. The audience were there, and people were starting to jump up to get a photo with me and the artist and the painting and all the rest of it. And lo and behold, Tony Abbott jumps up. (laughs) Um, But more quickly than him, uh, the uh, women who are cleaners in the Prime Minister's uh, offices in Parliament House have uh, been there for many Prime Ministers, Uh, they were in the audience and they jumped up to say hello to me and so I'm mucking around with them and saying hello to them. We're getting photos and they want, you know, one by themselves and one together and then two of them want one. And for all of this, Tony's kind of awkwardly on (laughs) on the edge of this crowd kind of waiting for it to dissipate. Um, And then finally sort of came up and the media were there and so they were desperate to get the shot, you know, desperate to get the shot of Tony Abbott being held up by the cleaners from the (laughs) Prime Minister's (laughs) office and desperate to get the shot of the encounter. But it was just a very ordinary, you know, sort of um, just wanted to come and acknowledge the moment and, you know, this is a big moment in your life and just wanted to be here and say, you know, hello. Look, Tony... uh, (laughs)
1: It could be like, you know, those boys at school that used to really like us, but they were mean to us and pull our hair.
0: (laughs) Right. Could be a case of that, Julia. I don't know. That's a really (laughs) bad thought, Indira. That's a really bad thought. (laughs)
1: Julia, you sound so magnanimous when you talk about um, that period and, and some of the key players. And I wanted to explore this idea that we don't hear talked about much when it comes to politics. It's always grudges that go on for decades and generations. But it sounds like forgiveness is, is the tone that you're applying here.
0: I, I mean, I think it's, um, it's a bit of forgiveness and it's uh, intentional forgetfulness. Um, I, I knew from my earlier life before I went into politics that sitting on a grudge sitting on a grudge does more damage to the person who does it than it ever does to the person, the subject of the grudge. And I worked that out way back when, when I was a young lawyer at Slater & Gordon, a Labor law firm, uh, which offered a first free consultation to people who were members of trade unions that we worked with. And so you'd have, you know, like seeing people on a half hour, and many people would have... You know, something bad had happened to them at work, but you knew if they walked in with what in the old days would have been lever arch folders full of documents and they started off by saying, it all started 14 years ago. And even if something bad had happened, there was just part of me who always wanted to put the lawyer thing aside and say... As one human being to another, you are going to live a happier life if you go home tonight and you put all of that in the incinerator and you burn it or you shred it and you just forget it and you move on. And so when it all was happening to me, you know, I had that voice in the back of my head, you know, time to take your own advice. And I knew ultimately that was about me and my state of wellbeing rather than, you know, I think forgiveness is actually more about the benefits and outlook of the person who forgives and forgets than the person, the subject of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it has been very key to me. I've had to work it, you know. <laughs> um, it's it's practised, uh, but it's given me the ability to just look back on that phase of my life without getting too rancorous or head up over it, and it's enabled me to draw a line and to embrace this bit of my life. And I think if you can't do that, if you're always thinking to yourself, if only I was back there, if only X had happened or Y had happened instead of what actually was the, the course of events, then you're forever stuck. And, you know, I came out... I'm hopefully still got many years to live, but I came out of politics a pretty young woman in many ways and you've got to make a fairly deliberate decision. What do you want the next 20, 30, 40 years of your life to be about? And I didn't want it to be about grinding the axe. Mm. I should just... Just add, in case any of this sounds um, too uh, high and mighty, uh, there, there are two women in my life, and I normally joke that I can show this sort of forgiveness because I've delegated the hating to them. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, uh, one, one who uh, believes in putting people's names in freezers, oh. and is uh, on her way to needing to buy a second one. You know, <laughs> no, no, no forgiveness there. Uh, and uh, another one who will still, um, on election day, uh, go and have quite an animated conversation with both the liberal handers. Out and the Greens, all based on my experiences in politics. <laughs> yeah. I'm never going to take your how to vote card because of what you did to Julia Gillard. Uh... <laughs> well, it's very
1: good if you can outsource it, Julia. Outsource. Definitely. You say in your book, not now, not ever, that um, we are so used to this baggage. Sometimes we don't know how heavy it is. You're speaking about that pers- pervasive nature of misogyny. So I wanted to ask you, it comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes and forms, doesn't it? For you, what does misogyny look
0: like? I think it it looks like the systems and structures that hold us back. It is both behaviours, but it's also institutions. It's. Um, Institutions that have been set up based around men's lives that haven't moved to accommodate the reality of women's lives and have just expected women to fit in and have put, therefore, all sorts of differential pressures on women. So it is structural. It is in the behaviours that belittle and demean. And in the modern world, I think we see the ugliest face of that on social media. And now, tragically, there are people, so-called influencers, uh, who are profiting from their, you know, vile trade in misogyny and preaching the subjugation of women. And I think it also uh, is there in the questions, the things that are forever present in the back of our minds, as women, as we navigate the world, which is why I did say, you know, what would we be without the weight of it? You know, who who would you be if you'd never asked yourself the question, is it safe to go out? Is it safe to walk there? Is it safe to go to this party? Is it safe to wear this dress? Um, you know, who would we be if that, question had never been in your reverberating in your head from your teenage years all the way through into your adult life um, who would we be if we'd just always thought that we could walk into a room and be accepted straight up for who we are rather than having the differential burden of proving that we're entitled to be there you know who would we be if we didn't worry so much about appearance because we know we get judged on it you know who would we be and what sort of life choices would we have made if we weren't worried about being judged as a good woman a nurturing woman an empathetic woman you know what would that feel like and because all of those roads you know, have got special burdens or they're even close to us, I do think that sort of sits on our shoulders as a weight and we don't even fully comprehend what it would be like to navigate the world much more freely. And for every question I've ever asked myself about those things, I'm keenly aware, and when we did the not Now Not Ever shows, we explored all of this, and the book certainly does, those questions are even more pressing and even more profound for women who are navigating gender burdens, gender prejudices, racial stereotyping, the sort of uh, prejudice and discrimination Indigenous Australian women face. You know, all of that makes all of those questions even heavier and harder and the weight is heavier.
1: Mm. Julia, you now chair the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. So, ten years on from that speech, what wins do you think we've made?
0: Oh, I think we. I think we have made some wins. Uh, I think this more mature conversation we're having is part. You know, the fact people are here for. You know, and. Uh, uh, deliberately feminist uh, text presented to you in ironic pink. uh, The fact that, uh, you know, uh, women women and men gather in such large numbers to have this conversation, it's telling us that we're making progress. You know, human beings don't fix things unless we get together and we talk about them and we think about them. Uh, The number of women that we see on the public stage um, has certainly increased. I mean, one of the under remarked things about the uh, Labor government winning uh, nationally is it's a government that is truly half-half, men and women, and once you get there, that forever changes how politics looks and it changes what politics talks about, the issues that are there for resolution. I think we've seen a lot of change in corporate Australia, much more thought about uh, women leading businesses, I think we've seen a lot of change in how uh, the younger generation thinks and talks about these things. But there are some ways that we've gone back, and certainly I think the sort of social media stuff drags us back. And I am worried that, you know, that social media is now giving birth to a movement which is a sort of misogyny strike back. Uh, And that if we're not very careful, that means that this sense of progress will be diminished. And even with the sense of progress, we're not moving quickly enough. So part of the mission of the Institute is to say, what works? How can we do it? ever more quickly what is the you know change that gives us the biggest impact so that we can reach gender equality in far less than a hundred years which is the kind of estimates that we get now. Mm. I mean social media has become a particular monster on a number of fronts but it
1: is so per- pervasive. How, how would you suggest we, we grapple with that when it comes to tackling misogyny?
0: Look, I think there's a regulatory piece here that governments have to think about and people may well see uh, in the news that, you know, governments around the world are trying to do some things. The European Union, for example, is trying to do some things, but it requires a lot of collaboration. So I do think there's a regulatory role. Um, you know, it. Uh, I can't accept a world in which, you know, I couldn't ring up uh, an Australian newspaper or email into an Australian newspaper and ask for an advertisement to be published which was threatening to kill someone or rape someone, that wouldn't happen Uh, and yet those things can be put on social media without, you know, algorithms coming and fixing them Uh, and if they ever do, they do it grudgingly and late. So I do think there's a regulatory piece and then I think there's a community conversation to be had about how much of our lives we want to live in that medium as opposed to doing things like this. And I think people are ready for that conversation, the sense that this is degrading our lifetime experience, not enhancing it, I think is very solidly out there. Julia, I want to explore the idea of grace. Again, a word that isn't
1: often associated with politicians in the political world. Hillary Clinton writes in this book that you did, you made that that speech with grit and grace. She used that word grace. And you've certainly shown a lot of grace since you moved away from parliament, Uh, unlike um, your predecessors who enter the domestic fray quite regularly. Was that a conscious decision, not to to play any politics and step back into it?
0: Yeah, completely conscious. Uh, And part of this drawing a line on that period of my life and and this period of my life. uh, And, you know, I couldn't... To be a really informed public commentator on day-to-day politics that's a big job, you know. You've got to follow the media, you've got to stay across it. I mean, obviously, I uh, stay across the big trends um, in Australian politics, in global politics, but I'm not um, riveted to 24-hour news TV working out who said what to who 15 minutes ago in Parliament. And I wanted to leave that behind. I mean, I, I joke with people, it's like... Um, you know, it's like getting off the drugs, you know, it's like pulling the needle out of your arm, you know. I'd been on the juice for a lot of years. uh, And uh, I, I pretty much went cold turkey after the election campaign in 2013. And that means that I can pull back, you know, still read and think, but at this broader level. And I'm happy to share my thoughts at this broader level, but I don't want to drop into that because it... To be in that would take me back into the behaviours and back into those times, and I don't want to be there. Uh, other things to do.
1: Mm. <clears throat> that doesn't seem to be the policy of the um, other ex prime ministers. <laughs> Funnily enough, they all tend to be blokes. Do you
0: see any parallels? We've only got uh, uh, this. the... I spend time with a lot of scientists these days uh, at the Wellcome Trust, which I chair in the UK, and I suspect they would say we don't have sufficient statistical depth uh, <laughs> with a, with an N of one experiment, only one woman, uh, to uh, work out whether or not that's true. But uh, time will tell. Time mm. will tell. Speaking of ex-prime ministers, the Australian public
1: has a love-hate relationship with, with our... Um, our politicians, our prime ministers, and we don't seem to treat them the way, for instance, the Americans do with with a number of their... I'm not going to say all their presidents, but a number of their presidents, where they still hold them in reverence, they're still included in public life and valued. Do you think we, we need to reassess how we look at our ex-prime ministers?
0: I, I think there's a sweet spot in the middle. I, I mean, it's not our culture to be uh, that reverential of political figures, and I think that's a good thing. I genuinely think it's a good thing. I mean, of the many, many things I love about Australia and indeed loved about Australian politics... I remember when I was first a backbencher and moving through Parliament House, and, you know, it's this grand space, and it's constantly lost, but I remember coming into uh, the sort of big open area, and there were school kids on a school trip there, and John Howard, then Prime Minister, was moving across the space, and the kids were all calling out, John, John, John! And, you know, he thought it was lovely, I thought it was lovely, and it's so inherently Australian that no, not even a you know nine, ten, eleven-year-old would think. I should say Prime Minister Howard, or I should say Mr. Howard. Uh, and and I hope we never lose that naturalness and that sense that we're kind of all in this together. Having said that, I think there's a you know, we've also got the tall poppy thing happening pretty strongly and, like, who do they think they are? Um, And, you know, most people who have served in senior levels of politics have got something more to offer. And if we could find ways of using that but not falling into the, you know, stand-up, the president's in the room sort of stuff, it would be great.
1: Mm. Julie, you said that when, when you resigned, you said that your time as the first female Prime Minister would make it easier for the next one. Now, it's been 10 years since then, and we haven't still seen our next female Prime Minister. Why not?
0: Well, I think inevitably we will, but there's a couple of reasons. I mean, politics... Uh You know, politics has got so many uh, random factors in it. Uh, There's so much hard work, there's so much thoughtfulness, there's so much skill and then there's these random things called timing and luck, uh, and all of those have to come together in a really unique combination uh, to propel someone to the prime ministership. I mean, I look back on the, you know, in the days of the Menzies government, you could have been the smartest Labor politician who ever lived, and you would have spent your whole political career in opposition. You know, there's timing and luck. And... In order for us to get the next female prime minister, the next woman, we need enough women who are in and around the top echelons of politics that when that timing and luck moment comes, that there are a number of women who could step forward. And I think Labor, because of our affirmative action policy, because this won't be the only time we present to the parliament a team that's half men, half women, we've got the right starting class. On the other side of politics, they're still below 30% women. They haven't even got the right starting class. And so we need it to be half men, half women across the whole parliament. We need it to be in a world where people can say, whoever is the prime minister, you know, should the prime minister retire or should something happen, then there's, you know, these five or six names who will be at the top echelon to take the job and for half of those names to be women and it's only when we're there that we're going to routinely see women come through. And I can see it from here, because Labor's made so much progress, but I really genuinely think, you know, opposition is for thinking things through and doing some hard changes. You know, one of the things that I really believe the Conservative parties need to do in opposition is sort out affirmative action targets and represent themselves as parties that are prepared to genuinely include women as equal numbers uh, in the candidates that they put forward for Parliament. Do you...
1: Now, this is a little bit of future sort of thinking, but do you think we may have the next female Prime Minister in Parliament right now?
0: Oh, I can't. I can't predict the timing <laughs> and luck. Um, I I, uh, I know Albo well, uh, and uh, you know we've known each other. Um, I mean, he was a teenager. I'm a couple of years older, but uh, he was a teenager. I've known him for years and years and years, and I am hoping uh, that we see a very long-term prime ministership for Albo. Uh, <laughs> but in. In those, you know, remote days, many years and many election victories from now, when uh, uh, the, the wheel turns, it would be terrific if there were uh, quite a number of women who could put their hands up. Mm. Said very diplomatically.
1: <laughs> now, being an ex-Prime Minister, Juliet, you're in a very exclusive club, but it is an exclusive male club, largely. So can you understand why, you know, there may be future uh, young women political leaders here listening to you thinking, oh, you've mentioned the social media problem and all the pressures. I I want to have a family and balance, you know, have a, a sustainable lifestyle. That's really difficult to do. Can you understand why people are put
0: off women, put off going into politics as a career? Oh, I absolutely can. And I'm really conscious and, you know, I've written, um, You know, when I wrote my story uh, about my time in politics, I wanted to balance up, I wanted to explain the gender issues, but say, politics needs women, women need politics, please... Still put yourself forward. When I wrote the Women in Leadership book with the conjury wheeler uh, who's now the head of the World Trade Organisation, it is, at the end of the day, a persuasion letter to try and get young women, women of all ages, to put themselves forward for politics. And I want not now, not ever, to be seen in that light too. Uh, I can't, with a straight face, say to any woman thinking of politics... There's no gendered bit. It's all fixed. There's still a gendered bit. But we're very knowing about the gendered bit now. We can, you know, you've seen this movie before. You can war game, you can strategise, you can reach out to others to support you through it. And it's only by having more and more women come in that we will end up equalising these things that will normalise how women in politics are seen. And it is trackable in the research that nations that have had more women lead them, uh, that the gender piece doesn't 100% go away, but it gets less. And so, you know, we do need more women in there. And for all of the discussion that we have about the gendered bit, we've also got to balance it with the discussion about the opportunity. I mean, I got to make reforms delivered with a fantastic team that I... I'm passionate about, that I believe in, they're still shaping our nation today, they've made us a better nation, and if you're the kind of person who's driven to put your values into action and to bring change, there's no better seat in the house, there's no better place in the world to do that from than from politics.
1: Mm. There may be women here in the audience who are facing a block, Julia, to their leadership aspirations, may not be in politics, it could be in in, in their career in in business. How should they tackle it? What advice would you give?
0: Yes, I'm always careful with this because I do have uh, young women come up to me and say, oh, you know, the misogyny speech, I could never give a speech like that, and you're like... Um, if you're in the break room at work, possibly not the best thing to be doing anyway, you know, but there's a set of behaviours that come with Parliament House that people tolerate in that environment, but if you conducted yourself like that on the bus, people would be going, wow, this is, uh, this is all a bit odd. I, one of the reasons we want to keep bringing the research to people is often it is, too much of a conversation for people to go into work and to say to a male work colleague particularly, look, you act like this, and it's gendered, and you should stop doing it, and I'm sick of you treating me like that. I mean, some women might feel they can go and have that conversation, and if so, absolutely all power to them. But lots of women wouldn't, either personally or because where they are in the hierarchy, they couldn't have that conversation and win through. And so I think giving people the examples, the research from other places, means you can often start these conversations in a different point. You know, the, did you know that this can happen, does happen, commonly happens to women, and get people talking about it more theoretically, and then connect the conversation to your workplace rather than starting immediately with your workplace. I think that's a strategy for change. And certainly something that's always worked for me is, you know, when in doubt, reach out to other women and like-minded men because things are always more possible if people go and do them together. And amongst the big changes uh, that have been happening, you know, Labor Party affirmative action targets, for example, they happen because people came and mobilised together. Mm. And then there's someone to have a drink with at the end of the day and chat it all through, which is good too. Yeah, it is. Julia, you're uh, currently the
1: Royal Commissioner uh, for the South Australian Royal Commission into Early Childhood and Care... You've handed down your interim report, and one of the key findings was you'd like preschool to start much earlier for three-year-olds, in fact. And education has always been a key passion of yours and an important element in how we can address misogyny and how we can you know, equal the outcomes and access that people have around the world. What are the education outcomes that maybe you see in Australia that we should be tackling? Where, where are we stalling?
0: Um, education was my first policy love. It's what got me active around politics uh, way back when, when I was a young student at Adelaide University. And it was my first policy love because I lived it in my home experience. You know, neither of my parents finished secondary school. Uh, not because they lacked capacity, they lacked opportunity. Uh, Dad, growing up in a coal mining village, left school at 14, Uh, and Mum, because she wasn't well as a child and there were no systems to keep her connected to school, so she sort of drifted away. And their real passion that my sister and I had a better chance and a better opportunity. And, you know, we migrants, Australia gave us that. You know, my sister and I went to the local state schools. They were fantastic schools. And we both got the opportunity to go to university. And so anything that, um, you know, prejudiced that struck me as very wrong. And that's what first got me involved in political campaigning when there were some cutbacks to education. And I still, all of these years later, think... We can look at our nation, and whilst we've done some powerful education reforms, there is more to do to make sure that all children uh, from any background uh, can have a great experience, preschool, school, after-school education, whether it's vocational education, universities, and have the the access to the transformation that education can bring. I know mean, from my own life, it's you know it's a completely different life than I would have lived if I hadn't gone to university and got involved in that campaigning. Uh, so you know, whenever we can look across our nation and see unequal outcomes, then we've got to keep moving, thinking, changing to address that.
1: Mm. I mean, maybe your life, Julia, always feels surreal, but I was thinking when I was doing research for this chat how surreal it may feel at the moment because you're juggling all these hats. So you've got the Royal Commissioner hat, uh, you've got your chair um, hat with Jewel, you've got your chair role with Beyond Blue, and then while all of this is happening, one of the country's most loved actresses, Justine Clarke, plays you in a play about you, Julia, um, which I... um, saw and loved, absolutely brilliant, Uh, Joanna Murray-Smith has done a a wonderful job of imagining your your inner world. And I wanted to ask you, because I know you haven't seen it yet, you're hoping to, Joanna Murray-Smith said on opening night that even with everything she's read about you, um, your autobiography, all everything, and as a playwright, she said, I still felt there was something that I still didn't know about Julia. So this play for her is her imaginings of you. And uh, there's a brilliant scene. I don't want to tell you too much because I love it. But there's a young Julia sort of uh, doing gymnastics with a a ribbon dance. Uh, It probably sounds a bit weird to you now, but (laughs) I, I, I really loved it. And I wonder how much of that is just you or can you ever really... Even someone who you know, is in the media and has been our Prime Minister, can you ever really know them to the level that a playwright wants to know you, to write a play about you? Or do, or do you have a sense of, there's something that I need to keep for me?
0: Well, one, I hate to disappoint you, but I am, and throughout my whole life, I've been like the patron saint of klutzes, so <laughs> if you can, if you can find a way of dropping it or falling over it, I will find that way, and there's No moment in my life that I was dancing neatly with a ribbon. (laughs) No moment in my life that that would have happened. Impossible. Um, uh, Unfortunately, I'd like to have been that girl, but I wasn't that girl. Um, I'm conscious that I am... I'm a person with quite a lot of reserve in in a life that's brought me any amount of exposure and there's a, there's a sort of weird disjunction in that and, and people, I mean, I think people think that politicians are natural extroverts, that they're people who want to surf off the energy of the crowd, they're people who need it. And there are politicians like that and, um, you know, sort of all power to them. I think the uh, great, uh, much-missed Bob Hawke was a politician like that. He surfed the energy of the crowd. Mm. I'm, I'm someone who's always refreshed, needed to decompress in my own time, my own space, or with the people who are closest to me. And I can go out in the world and do things like this and chat to people and I enjoy it. Uh, but there is, you know, I am in some ways playing against type. Um, it, because not playing against type's not right. I, there's this, there is this sense of, of reserve, this sort of core that that is that I keep to me and I'm just sort of built like that. And I didn't go into politics to do the big, you know, whatever the sort of political equivalent of the the great sort of personality striptease is, you know, please come and inspect the inner essence of me. I, I went into politics to make a difference, to make a change, to do the things that I believed in. And I knew to do that that I had to reach out to people and win their confidence and they needed to understand me and understand those values. But there's always just been that slight edge of reserve in it. And I can't, for me, I can't imagine a different way of being. That's who I am. And I think, in some ways, it's the difference between being the politician as opposed to also wanting the celebrity bit, and that was never quite me. I mean, I used to joke, um, I used to joke with people if I could have found a way of, you know, leading a government, being a senior minister uh, without ever going on TV and no-one knowing my face or name, I would have done it like that, (laughs) but you can't do it like that. You've got to do it like this, and this brings its own joys and delights. I don't want you to think that I don't, you know, have a sense of... uh, pleasure and assurance and connection in these moments, because I do, but it's at the end of the day not the thing that feeds my inner soul. The thing that feeds my inner soul is, you know, I can look back on the National Disability Insurance Scheme or the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse and say, you know, I was there I don't I hesitate to say I did that because we did that. Um, it was about more than me, but it is different because I was there. That's what feeds the inner soul. And so for me now in this moment, it's about, you know, what can we do through the Global Institute for Women's Leadership? What can we do through Beyond Blue? What can we do through my other engagements that make change and make a difference? Well said.
1: Julia, thank you so much for tonight, for your generosity and your openness. Uh, We've all enjoyed it immensely. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Australia's first female Prime Minister, Julie Gillard.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.